What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. The thing that conservatives never understand is they they always say to me, how can we win back Hollywood? And I always tell them, you can't. You have to build Hollywood. You have to beat Hollywood. You have to beat them at their own game. You have to make stuff that people actually want to see. Nothing they say means anything except leftism. You know, feminism is not feminism. It's just leftism. Gay rights are not gay rights, just leftism. Racial rights aren't racial rights. It's all about the leftism. It's all about collecting power in a central place so they and their genius can turn the world into utopia. <laughs> just just a one second after they turn it into a hellhole. You know? All right, folks, it is Wednesday. We are making our way towards the weekend, over halfway through the weekend. I hope you had a great Halloween. I showed you my costume yesterday. I asked you what you thought online. And I guess what? At least the majority of you think I did a a better job than John Fetterman of looking like John Fetterman. It doesn't take much though, does it? You just have to look like a slob uh, with the sweatshirt and the gym shorts. But at least from the online feedback I got, I think I did a pretty good job. Anyway, um, a lot happening, as I said, on the Hill with Mike Johnson. He continues to jam uh, the Senate with this spending package for Israel. And he's doing it in the right way. Breaking away from Ukraine, making each of these uh, independent so that we have to vote on them on their merits, and he's offsetting it, making the Democrats have to decide between the IRS and supporting Israel. I love it. I don't know where we end up, but I just like the fight. Today, though, we're going to sit down with Andrew Clavin. He's now at the Daily Wire. He started his career in Hollywood as a liberal left-wing writer, and man, has he evolved. Uh, he's got another great book out, another mystery thriller. He's such an amazing writer, and that's why he, that's, it, it's his his arc, how he got into this is phenomenal. I'm excited to share not only his new book, but how he got to where he is now and the challenges that we face and how we can overcome them in Hollywood. Let's get into it with Andrew Clayton. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. It's good to see you. So congrats on the book. I've got my copy here. Thank uh, you. I'm excited to read this. It's interesting. I, I look at you as sort of a conservative thought leader, and yet you are like, when you look at your Amazon page and the number of books you've written, uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, how like w- walk me through the process here. Is there something that you're always doing? Because I feel like there's like every 18 months, there's a new book from you. Yeah, you know, I, I became a conservative commentator by accident, really. My <laughs> life has been writing uh, crime stories, uh, mostly for no- mostly novels, but some movies as well. And um, I just, I guess when I was in Hollywood, I started commenting on politics and it got thrown out of Hollywood. So it got me into a different uh, segment of my career. But I keep doing this because I love it so much. And I feel, you know, to be honest with you, I feel that where conservatives lose the country is in the culture, not necessarily at the ballot box. And I think I'm 
you know, uh, one of the top mystery writers in the country. So I want to keep doing it. I think it's important that we tell stories and that we actually observe the world as it is instead of as the left says it is. Yeah. So I want to get to that in a second, but I want to go back to what you said a moment ago. When, so when you, how did you make your way to Hollywood? Well, I started by writing novels and some people in Hollywood liked the novels and said, gee, you'd make a good screenwriter. And I didn't actually want to work in Hollywood at all. A, a lady producer called me up and said, literally said to me, we like your book so much, we will pay you to write any screenplay you want. And I, to her shock, and now looking back into it, to my shock, said, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to be in Hollywood. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> you know how many people, you know how many people are like <laughs> sitting, listening to this right now saying, I would have killed to be in your place, like people, that are, they're dying for that shot. And you're like, ah, that, that, I don't want that. <laughs> that was the look on her face when I said it. It was, it was just natural to me because I loved books so much. And she said to me, well, is there anything you would write? And I had read this wonderful mystery by uh, Simon Brett, one of the great British mystery writers called Shock to the System. And I say, yeah, I'd, I'd write that if you optioned it. And she did. She went out and optioned it. So I felt stuck. Uh, I wrote it. It was instantly made into a film, a good film, if I say so, with uh, Michael Caine. And then I would just do it from time to time. People would call me up and say, well, would you work on this or that? But then they started making my books into films. Uh, right. Clint Eastwood made True Crime and uh, Michael Douglas made Don't Say a Word. And I just thought, you know, while I'm still young enough to do this, because screenwriting is a very young man's game, I thought I ought to go out there and just see if I can work for a while. And for a while, I was really successful in Hollywood, which is a very lucrative field. And I was doing very well. And then the, uh, at the Warriors on Terror started. And Hollywood began making movies in which our guys were the bad guys. They were just, there, there must have been at least a dozen of them. They were all bombs, but they kept making them. They didn't care. And so they would make these movies in which American soldiers were rapists and American soldiers were murderers and just one after another after another. And I thought, you know, I don't care. You, you have, you're an American. You have a right to your opinion about the wars, but you don't have a right to make propaganda for the enemy while our right. soldiers are in the field. The, the anti-Vietnam War films were made after everybody had come home. And I started saying that. I started making speeches and writing op-eds about it. My, my phone turned off like that. I just stopped getting any work at all. But at the same time, people started asking me to speak and asking me to make videos and things like that. And so it became another career. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by faith. Sure. But so like, let me just take this back a step because you made it sound so nonchalant. Like I was writing these books and then I got a call from Hollywood. Uh, getting a book published is no easy feat in oh. itself. And I, it was funny, one of the first things, and maybe it's a little different on the fiction side than it is on the nonfiction but I've always thought that I've, I, I you know, I've, I'm like a serial entrepreneur. I always have these ideas and then it's like realizing taking them to market is a lot easier said than done. And when I first initially had talked to some book promoters years ago and said, I've got some great ideas, they were like, okay, well, what's your, you know, do you have a, a, a an audience? And it, now it's much easier with social media because you can say, this is how many people I have that follow me. That's your potential audience. I've got an email list. But how did you get your start where somebody said, wow, you're not only a gifted writer, but we want to publish it? Because that that seems like a pretty big jump. It's huge. It's an 
it took me forever. In fiction, it's harder than nonfiction because in nonfiction, if you have a subject and you're an expert on that subject, you can get a book published. In fiction, you're just waiting for somebody to say, yeah, this guy is good. He knows what he's doing. And it takes a while to get good. It takes a while to, uh, to find somebody who recognizes you. I started out, I had no idea what I was doing. I was carrying my manuscript from door to door in a box. People literally physically threw me out of their offices. <laughs> this is not how this was done. And it was really only when my wife got a job at a literary agency and said, you know what, I can sell your book. She, she sold my book and, and that was the start of it, but it was tough. It was, it was really, really hard. And, and so once you got that first one, was that it? It was off no, to the races? No, no, it really bombed. It was terrible. Uh, <laughs> it was, I, I mean, it was just an uphill climb. I started finally writing under a pseudonym because I was so tied up in contracts that didn't go anywhere and such like that. And then my pseudonymous mysteries began winning awards and getting sales. And I finally At just- At one time, stayed. didn't you go by a female name? Once, yeah, one time. We, I, it's we, funny, I, I mean, never, now, now yeah. it would have been totally cool. They would have been like, oh, I identify as a female writer. <laughs> but- <laughs> it was hilarious when I won an award for that book and me and my brother who had written the book together stood up, these two guys with beards and everything, stood up at, at the name of this woman. Uh, it made it quite a stir. <laughs> but why, and, and, but why, why would you, like, it's funny now, like I said, people would have applauded you and been like, oh, you must have identified with, but back then, why did you choose the names that you did and, and the gender, frankly? Well, it was because it was a kind of a, what was then called a woman in peril novel. It was about a woman who was being chased by a serial killer. And we thought, well, it's for women, you know, women will like it. We'll use a female name. And uh, we, I was just getting started. I mean, I, I, I literally, when that book, when that, they sent me the first check for that book, I think I had 10 cents in the bank and uh, it went, that thing saved my life. But, you know, it was very slowly. I had, I had a lot of background. I loved the mystery genre and yeah. I had a lot of background in it. And it took me a long time to sort of understand how I could use the mystery genre to say the things I wanted to say and show the world the way I wanted to show it. And it was just a hard road. You know, it really was. It's it, Look, nobody, nobody promises you that you can be an artist for a living. That's a very rare thing that happens. There are probably more major league baseball players than there are people like me who make their living in the arts. You know, it's just something you risk your life on. And when it pays off, people yell at you as if you've been, they, they treat you as if you'd been paid a million dollars for six weeks work when you'd been paid, paid right. basically, if you prorate it, you're making about $10,000 a year. But like, you know, it, it was what I loved. I desperately wanted to do it and I dedicated my life to it. And I was really, really fortunate that it panned out. So you said that, that, Hollywood started to shift and, and talk about the bad guys. Is that is that when you kind of maybe had an evolution or were you already ahead of that in terms of your own personal identity and ideology? It's a great question. What happened to me is I went, I went and lived in England with my family for seven years. We got kind of tired of political correctness. And I said, I'm going to go to England for a year and just get away from American culture back in the, back in the nineties. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with London and we just stayed and stayed and stayed for seven years. And I just, all I did was pay attention to London, English culture, English, you know, arts, English friends, whatever. I really wasn't paying attention to Clinton's impeachment, Clinton's affairs, didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. And I left, I was a liberal. And I was a Democrat and I thought Republicans were evil. That's because that's what, that's the only thing that Democrats actually know. They don't know any right. facts about anything, but they know that Republicans are evil. And, and I would hear these things about this terrible man, Rush Limbaugh, who was taking over the, you know, the radio waves and all this stuff. And I came back right around 2000 and very shortly thereafter, of course, 9-11 happened. Right. And I remember sitting 
watching David Letterman, who was the late night, the hip late night comedian of the time. And he came out and he said, you know, I have to think about this terrible thing that's happened and I have to figure out why they hate us. And I, I said, why? They hate us. They're Nazis. Of course they hate us. They're supposed to hate us. If, if they don't hate us, we're not the good guys. The bad guys are supposed to hate the good guys. And I suddenly realized that the culture had gone through this sea change while I was gone that the people in America didn't see because it had happened slowly day by day. But being away for seven years, I suddenly saw that these madmen, these people of a small, mean, horrible ideology could murder 3,000 people and and people and celebrities would think it was our fault. And and so I started to go and talk to the only people who would talk to me who were conservative think tanks and say, <laughs> do you do you understand that you didn't lose this at the ballot box? You lost the country at the movies. And they looked at me like I was nuts. I mean, it was 20, it's now like 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And they looked at me like, I, we don't know what you're talking. You know, you're cute. You work in Hollywood. So we're kind of interested. <laughs> you're kind of cool. But like, what, what are you talking about? And it took 20 years before people started to call me and say, you know, I remember you said something about this and now I get it. You know, now I see what's going on. That idea that the culture was where we lost the country was actually right. new at the time. And now everybody gets it, but it's only slowly that we're waking up to the fact that we have to do something about it. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now, the truth. So you noted that your phone stopped ringing for a while. Is that, walk people through this for a second. Is it that there's just such a stranglehold at the top in terms of the, the, the executives? Uh, is it the entire culture? Because I, I was out in LA for a while uh, when I was on Dancing with the Stars for like four or five months. And it was funny how many times somebody would pull me aside, never at the executive level. But sometimes hair and makeup or, you know, the, the crew that was working or a producer and say, hey, just, you know, I'm, I'm a supporter. I'm a friend. Yes, that happened to me all the time. People would call me aside and, and speak in a whisper and they would say, I saw you on Sean Hannity, you know, and I really agree. And I would say, why are you whispering? We're in the right. The <laughs> There's no one else here. <laughs> There's no one else here. But, but in fact, it meant that they would lose their job. And Gary Sinise, God bless him, you know, one of the few open Republicans out there started a secret society called, uh, you know, Friends of Aid, we were called right. because it's in the old days, gay people were called Friends of Dorothy, like in The Wizard of Oz, we called ourselves Friends of Aid because we had to be as, as low profile as that. And I, I, I said to Gary, we can't go in secret because we won't get anything done. And he said, you know, it's all right for you to say that. It's all right for me to say it, but it's not all right for the gaffer, for the lighting guy, for the voiceover guy. And so, and so that's, we had to live in secret. It was really like being in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where you'd stand up and say, you know, my name is Andrew, I'm a Republican. And people would go like, hi, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So it, it was really, it's not so much that there's a list that goes around. And people say to you, you'll never work again. I can't prove that I was blacklisted. I can only prove that I went from making a very, very good living to making nothing overnight. And that quick, that quick. I mean, I had to sell my house. It was like absolute. Oh, oh yeah, no, it was an absolute shock to the system. Although I knew it was coming. I, I knew that I was what I was doing. I, I was very consciously saying, 
with with our guys getting shot at, I can't just keep my mouth shut. Right. You know, you have to do something. And 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 the and the thing is, I don't think there's a list that goes around. What I think is, it's so hard to make a living as a screenwriter that you are going through maybe 12, 15 hoops just to get hired. Somewhere along that line, you are going to meet that person who turns you off. And somewhere along the line, the phone just stops ringing. And I think that that's the way it works. I can't prove it, but it was so sudden and so complete and remains complete to this day. I mean, my my agent, one of my agents who was a stone leftist would say, no, 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 nobody, all they care about is money. I would say if they cared about money, they wouldn't be making these movies about how bad we are. They keep bombing, you know, because- Right, it was, it was well, that's the thing that I, I continue to be amazed by how many times Hollywood gets it wrong, but there's no consequences because as long as they're promoting the left, it's it's okay, and they they give each other passes because as long as they're promoting those values, it's okay, right? And that's the thing that I find so fascinating about an industry that spends so much money. Yep, it's, it's amazing. Here, here's the hilarious thing. All these movies, Lions for Lamb, uh, you know, I can't, Redaction, all these films came out about how evil we were and how the Republicans had drawn us into this evil war and why were we killing these poor Muslim people, these lovely Muslim people, all picture after picture after picture, each one of them bombed. And so I remember reading in Variety, which is the, the trade paper right. of Hollywood, I remember reading a, an article, people don't want to see movies about the, the wars on terror. <laughs> I laughed. I said, yeah, they don't want to see movies where we're the bad guys because we're not, you know? So right. that went on and on and on. And after a while, and, and the one film I think was on HBO, I'm trying to remember what it was about, it was, uh, what it was called, but it was about a Marine driving home the body of a fallen soldier, which was not anti-war or pro-war. Right. It was just in tribute to the Marines who had died in their service. That was attacked universally as being jingoistic. Then Clint Eastwood made the film American Sniper, the largest grossing R-rated film, I think, in history at that time. And Variety wrote another piece. We're confused. We, we thought people didn't want to see films about the war on terror. Well, yeah, they wanted to see the truth, which was that Americans were heroes and we were the good guys and we were fighting on the right side. And so they turned out en masse for that film, which was a great film. Didn't win the Oscar, of course, because of what it said. Right. But still, it was one of the best films in 20 years. So they're so locked into that culture and they cannot believe, A, that it's not the American culture and B, that we don't care what they think. So, you know, the Oscars went from being one of the entertainment events of the year to being something that three people watch, maybe if they happen to be drunk and they can't find the remote, you know, they watch the Oscars because it's all, right. all these actors shouting at us, these people who can't even keep their marriages together telling us who we should vote for, you know, and it's just, it's obscene. But they don't get it. They do not right. get it. And, and I think it's now they have this idea that the reason they don't get it is because we're all idiots. You know, those people out in the hinterlands fly over country. They're all fools. So that's the, what they tell themselves. But really, it's that they're a bunch of messed up people who live for love. They live to, for fame and they have no idea who, what, about anything about politics. And all they want to do is tell us that the climate is killing us and, all, and, and they want to feel important, I guess. And, right. And that's so that's what they do. But it's a, it's a very messed up culture. And it's really True. unfortunate because it has such a powerful effect on the mind of America. You know? So you mentioned Gary Sinise and this group, Friends of Abe, that, that he had and that you were part of. Would people be surprised by who's a member of this group, either back then or now? That, In other words, are there actors and people that we hear about that we say, wow, we never knew that that person 
was a conservative or a Republican? Probably not. The very okay. few, the, the top stars who were there were all people who nobody, I don't think anybody would say, I, I, did, I never would have guessed. There was nobody like that. The people who were there in secret were the the writers and the um, voiceover guys and the people who kind of hold Hollywood together but don't get a lot of attention. And and they would tell their stories. We would sit around and tell our stories. And I have to tell you, Sean, the stories of the black guys and girls who showed up were the worst of all. They were, whenever anybody found out that a an African-American person was a conservative, they were treated like garbage. It was it was absolutely. I mean, you would listen with tears in your eyes. You really would because they would just be treated like dirt. And it really revealed a lot about the nature of the left and the fact that nothing they say means anything except leftism. You know, feminism is not feminism. It's just leftism. Gay rights are not gay rights, just leftism. Racial rights aren't racial rights. It's all about the leftism. It's all about collecting power in a central place so they and their genius can turn the world into utopia. <laughs> just just one second after they turn it into a hellhole. You know? It doesn't sound like much has changed because, I mean, you find these same people who side with Republicans now who don't fit into the mold because they're a minority or they have some, you know, some reason that's supposed to make them a leftist. And if they don't agree with that, a successful woman, and they go, oh, well, I can't believe you're betraying the, the thing. For you, when did you and how did you make that, that conversion from being author, Hollywood type to, you know, uh, commentator? Well, it was pretty funny. Uh, Roger Simon, who was also a mystery writer, a very fine mystery writer, uh, helped start a place called PJTV, which was kind of yeah. the Daily Wire before there was the Daily Wire. You know, it was, it was a, the first guy time they experimented with video commentary and all this. And I'd always bump into Roger because he'd been a screenwriter, too. And I'd bump into him in Hollywood bars and he would say, come and do work for PJTV. And I would say, I'm a writer. The last thing I want is to be on camera. I, I live in my room. I make up stories. You know, I go home. Nobody knows who I am. I love it that way. And he kept bothering me and bothering me. He said, at least watch what's on. So I watched it. And there was a very fine commentator named Bill Whittle who had. Oh, I love Bill Whittle. Everybody loves Bill Whittle. And he had he had network quality talent. Yeah. He was very serious. And he would show, look in the camera and he would deliver the facts and very hard yep. on. So I called up Roger and I said, you know, if I can do Bill Whittle as Monty Python, I would do it. And and Roger, who was just experimenting, said, sure, go ahead. And so I started writing these funny commentaries to kind of go with Bill Whittle's. And, and Bill, I, I'll never forget the first one I did. I was in a studio and I did the thing and the door came crashing open like a SWAT team was coming in and it was Bill Whittle and he put his nose like this close to my face and he started cursing me out and he said, now we're all going to have to do that. <laughs> wait, wait, so was he upset or was he, he laughing? Was, was he was he... laughing upset. You okay. know, he was getting around because he thought this, this is something different, it's something new and it's cool and we have to, we all have to put some of this humor into the, into the content right. and we did and it really worked out well and I, you know, suddenly I was getting like a million hits on a, a video and uh, I, I, I was stunned and I, I kind of that one was trapped. I couldn't get out of it. And so that led ultimately to the Daily Wire, which has been one of the great experiences of oh, my yeah. life, the great cultures there. So when you said that led to the Daily Wire, first of all, I, I, I had Bill Willer on my last show. I always loved his videos because he would explain things and break them down in a very methodical, reasonable, logical way that you'd walk away going, yep, I'm on that team. And that's what I thought we needed more of on the conservative side is somebody who took sort of some of these complex issues 
where the left tries to own them and says, really? Because boom, 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 boom. And you come away with no other conclusion than what I believe is the right one. That's right. Yeah, he, and, and, and the thing that got me about him was I just looked at him and I thought, wow, this guy could be on any network. He's, he's that right. good. And, and he's not simply because he's saying <laughs> he's not. something else. Yeah, yeah. He's saying something that they don't want to hear. And that, that was very telling to me. Yeah. So you, you move over to the Daily Wire. And what I think is so interesting to me is, and I'll use the word maturity um, in a very positive way. I, I think that the Daily Wire has gone from being a site to a massive platform in, I don't even know, but I, I look at this, I, I, I have this, my listeners know that I'm obsessed with how, how the debates have, in my opinion, been a failure. Meaning we took over them in 2015 when I was at the RNC. I really hoped conservative media as it matured and grew would sort of own these debates. And, and the RNC has then turned around and said, let's give Lester Holt and Kristen Welker our debate at NBC instead of a Daily Wire or a Blaze or a First or whatever. But, and I, I look at, so walk, like when you got to the Daily Wire, what did you think at the time compared to where it is now? Oh, it was hilarious. I mean, uh, Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring uh, approached me and said, We're, we want to start a site. Would you do the, your funny videos for him? I said, sure. And we started a site and it went very well, but we all got fired because the, the <laughs> place who was funding us didn't like it. And, and Jeremy said to me, don't go anywhere else. I'm going to get some money and we're going to build our own platform. And this time we're going to make it capitalist. And I said, great, you know, that's, that's fine with me. And it, it was me and Ben and Jeremy in Jeremy's pool house, uh, the, the changing house out, outside his, his pool in his backyard. We were sitting at a little fold out coffee table with a mic and we'd do like 15 minutes of, of podcast. Within seven years, it was a billion-dollar media industry, and it was so fast and so shocking, much of it having to do with Ben just shooting to success, which I knew was going to happen the minute I heard him. I just I told him, you know, that you, that I, I grew up in radio, so the minute I heard him, I thought, this is a real broadcast talent. But, but all the same, and Jeremy's brilliance in running the place, it just became a massive, massive thing. And suddenly, me, this guy who only wanted to sit in his room and write, was being like crowded by young people like I was some kind of rock star. It was a an absolute shock to the system. But at the same time, I couldn't help thinking, you know, you're speaking the truth. You're telling them about the things that have to happen, about the way things uh, have to go. You're telling them things that no one else will tell them. So you're doing a service, you know, you're doing the service that is in keeping with what you believe about the arts, which is to tell the truth and make sure that, you know, your vision is honest and, and spreads the word. And, and so I thought like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And it's just been bliss because, because of the people, the people, it's a great culture there. Ben is a great guy. Jeremy's a great guy. They, and, and Knowles, we can tolerate Knowles sometimes. Um, but, <laughs> I get that one. Yeah, but no, it, it really has been a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's some of the best people I've ever worked with and just kind of a miraculous success. The thing that I find interesting about the Daily Wire is that, to your point, you've got these great people. You, I know Jordan Peterson has joined. Yep. Uh, there's a great, your son, Spencer, he's still there, correct? Yep. And, and jo Jordan's another one, a great guy. Right. Yeah. But, but, but that's, that would seemingly be enough. But yet the Daily Wire is really taking it to Hollywood. And as a guy who was in Hollywood, I love how they are basically saying, great, we'll go head to head with these guys. And, and this Snow White thing, I think, has been the, the, the latest iteration of this, um, to the extent that you can, I mean, I, I feel like that's a big deal that going yep. straight at Hollywood and saying, to your point, these guys have been creating crappy content, anti-American content, anti, like just 
stuff that's undermining good old traditional values, despite what the audience wants to see. And I look and I say, Sound of Freedom, Soul Surfer, all these other movies that come out, do really well. And the message to Hollywood should be like, hey, we want more of this. And yet they make more crap. The Disney movies have been a colossal failure over the last couple of years because they're trying to change the what, what have been traditional stories and lessons and values. And yet you guys at The Daily Wire are taking them head on. Well, this is what we started with. I mean, the, the commentary was actually a way to get to the culture creation. We started out thinking, you know, look, look, conservatives really don't support the arts. You have to convince them, you have to bring them along. And so we started with the commentary and moved with, with the idea from the very start that we were going to move to the culture. The, the, the idea that, Dis, Dis, you know, what Disney is doing is a grave betrayal of trust. This is a brand that was built by a Christian man, a great one of the great right. businessmen in American culture, they have taken that in the same way the people at the New York Times and the people at Yale University have stuffed great institutions with leftism so that they're no longer a great institution. They're just the shadow of a great institution cloaking uh, leftism. In the same way, Disney has taken this beloved uh, genre and this beloved uh production company and turned it into a vehicle for, as they themselves have said, queering the children. So the thing that conservatives never understand is they, they always say to me, how can we win back Hollywood? And I always tell them, you can't. You have to build Hollywood. You have to beat Hollywood. You have to beat them at their own game. You have to make stuff that people actually want to see. And hilariously, when Jeremy, <laughs> when Jeremy announced you know, that they were making a, a live action Snow White and the stars were going around saying, oh, it's not going to be, first of all, Snow White's not going to be white and she's not going to find a prince and they're not going to be dwarves because that's, you know, insensitive. They're going to be, and they were saying all this stuff and Jeremy announced, well, we'll make Snow White. And I, I texted him and I said, I'm going to be saying your name on my deathbed. That's the funniest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> and just, and just the exact right attitude that I have always felt the left should have that I've always had, you know, I mean, I've always had this idea that I'm not going to kowtow to the killers of babies. I'm not going to count out of people, right. you know, who think you can butcher a child and change his sex. I'm not going to apologize to them for my opinions and my outlook. And I've been doing this for a long time and I have paid the price for it. I, I'll tell you, Sean, like I wrote a book called Empire of Lies about the wars on terror with a conservative and openly politically conservative hero. The, the day before I published that book, I was getting rave reviews in maybe 300 venues across the country. When that book came out, I got one review calling me a right-wing crackpot. And I, and I knew it. And, and when I finished writing it, I looked at myself in the mirror and said, look, I was an award-winning mystery writer. I'd won major, major awards. I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I said, you're never going to win another literary award. Yeah. You're never going to get another good review. You're never going to be on the Times list. Can you live with that? And I thought, yeah. You know, see, yeah. see, Andrew, this is what you're, you're putting your finger on something that I, I in, in DC, everybody runs around when it becomes the White House Correspondence Center. And, and look, I will say this just so we're clear. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I get it. I was a young Hill staffer. I wanted an invitation. I've been to the dinner and it took me a while to come around to this, to realize they're never going to like you. They are bad people. Stop trying to worry about what they think. And I go to the MRC dinner, the Media Research Center, and I see, you know, all the, the table from the Daily Wire. And I go, okay, these people get it. Would you rather hang out with them or would you rather try to hang out with the people on the left that will never like you? They may tolerate you. But I think the point that, that I 
that you're making is that so many people think that they're going to change Hollywood or that they're going to like you if you do X, Y, and Z, or if you kowtow to them, or if you water down your views on something. And that's, and, and it's about, if you want their awards and you want their praise, then you have to sacrifice your values and what you believe. And too many people on the right still think that it's okay. It's the, the just, I, I want to go to the dinner. I want to go to the party. And, and that's what they don't get. You can't, you can't have it both ways. That's exactly right. And the, the, the thing is, they, everybody yells about the New York Times, but all they want is for the New York Times to like them. What they want the New right. York Times to say is, well, he's conservative, but we love him. They will never, ever say that. And my feeling is, if I had a parakeet, I would not line his cage with the New York Times. It would be treating it too well. And I'm, I'm going to say it a million times. And look, it, it it costs you. It means you're not going to get on their list. You're not going to get the good right. reviews. They're one of the only reviews left that can make, you know, help a book along. You're not going to get that. It, but I, look, life is short. The, the only thing that matters is the joy of living. You know, you, you cannot have joy of living with lying and kowtowing to people like that. And it's just not worth it. It's just not worth but it. For viewers to understand this, when you when you publish a book, every, whether it's USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, judges you as a bestseller by whether you sold more books than anyone else. So if you sold the seventh most book, okay, the New York Times has a proprietary formula that says how many books on the west side of New York did you sell and how many in the Greenwich Village? And they they won't tell anyone it. But that just, to me, I find that so fascinating that all of these people who want to tell us about the truth and facts have a, a, a bestsellers list that isn't about whether you sold the most books. That's right. I mean, both, this is the third, The House of Love and Death is the third novel in this Cameron Winter series. The first two were on the USA Today list, but the New York Times, the way they work is they send a list of books to booksellers and say, which one of these sold the most? But if your book isn't on that list, right. they, they have to write it in, which is about as uh, good as, you know, being a candidate who has to be written in. You're just not going to get on the list that, you know, that's the way they work. And, and look, if that's the way they work, you have two choices. You can kowtow to them or you can go your way and hope, hopefully with the new media. I mean, this is the thing that's been a blessing for me. This new media means that I can work, that I can thrive. It, it depends, though, on conservatives stepping up. It depends yes. on saying, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's funny. When people come talk to me about books now, uh, I'll say to them, you know where I, so when I did my first book, I thought it was awesome. I was on the Today Show. I went on Jimmy Kimmel. And at one point I started to say, like, no one there is going to buy your book. They don't like you. But I would love anywhere on the Daily Wire, Glenn Beck, Dan Bongino. I mean, these are, it's like, those people are going to, and, and you're absolutely right. The right needs to support the right. The right needs to say, hey, Andrew Clavin's got a brand new book out. Let's go promote it and support him. And, and you know, I, I am in the fortunate position that, that I'm not a guy who's writing, I'm not writing conservative novels. I, like on the back of this book, you can see Stephen King calling me the most original writer of crime and suspense in, in 50 years, 60 years, since Cornell Woolrich, who was one of the greatest, but back in the old days. I, I am that guy. I've won two Edgar Awards. That's the highest uh, award you can get in the mystery writing business. I've been nominated five times. I, this is what I do. So right. I have the advantage of going to conservatives and saying, don't get it because I'm a conservative. Get it because it's- I'm a good writer. It's the best out there. Right. And, and you're going to get somebody who has a conservative point of view. I'm not going to preach. That's not what I'm about. I'm about telling stories, but at least I'm writing about the world as it is, not as it's supposed to be according to the left. And that, that's what makes the difference. So, so in this book, let's get into it. Uh, the character Cameron Winters is, is, 
is a trained spy. How do you, with your background, write for a guy like this? Well, the the thing is, when I started out, the the reason I became a mystery writer is because when I was 15 years old, I read the Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe books, which are probably the greatest tough guy novels in American history. And Philip Marlowe was a guy who was a knight inside, but outside he was a seedy little man who had a seedy little job in a corrupt town, which was Los Angeles. And that was Chandler's point. Chandler wrote the famous line. He said, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean. That is your hero. And and so when I started to write this series, that's what I wanted to go back to. I wanted to write a guy, I, you know, I've been watching the shows, the, the television shows in the, in the, 2000s, which was supposed to be the second golden age of television. And all of them were about antiheroes, the Sopranos, the Shield, Breaking Bad. They were all about guys who could only be men in terms of being an outlaw. And that made perfect sense to me. I'd been writing the same characters in the 90s, a true crime that Clint Eastwood made is about just that guy, the worst guy in the room who somehow is the most manly because he's the worst. And I started to think, you know, okay, now we've done this. Now we've said you outlawed masculinity. We're going to make our, our men outlaws. I thought, how do you get back from there? How do you get back from being a bad guy to being a good guy? How do you be a man in a world that hates men, but but a good man? And so that's how I came up with this idea of of Cameron Winter. He's a guy who has been a killer. He's a guy who has worked for the government and done terrible, terrible things. But but how do you, how does you, how, when you write about someone like him, how do you know what it's like to be a spy? I mean, do you, do you, do you call people who've done the job in the FBI, the CIA, et cetera. Like, where do you get the expertise to make that character jump off the page so that we as the reader go, oh my God, this guy, you know, clearly is a trained spy because he knows all this stuff. Yeah. You talk to people and you read. That's what you do. I mean, that's how you do research. And I've been doing this for so long that you kind of make contacts. I know people I can call and say, how would you do this? How does this happen? And how does it feel especially? But also in the end, you know, I'm a novelist, so I make stuff up so and make it, make it come <laughs> to life. You know, that's that's what I do. But no, I you know, research is really important. You have to give it verisimilitude. But what I'm trying to do is create an experience of of this man moving through was essentially the fall of the Republic and trying to remain an all, an, or trying to become an all-American hero. And that's kind of the themes of the book. So do you want, when you're reading this, the, the values that you're talking about, do you want someone to take away from the book something about Cameron as a character, as a, as a, that like, hey, it's better to be on the side of good and to have conservative values? Or is this your escape from dealing with any of the cultural issues. No, I, I wouldn't put it, I, I wouldn't say either of those things. I, I believe that a work of art is a way of communicating your vision to another person. You can't really tell people what it's like to be a human being in the world. You, you know, right. even if you, even if I ask you, how was your birthday? You, ha- you have to use metaphors, you know, you'll <laughs> say, well, it was like, you know, Christmas morning, it was like something else. And that's, that's what art is about. It's about telling you what life is like in a certain right. moment in time. And that's, that's what I'm trying to create. I'm trying to, write books where you read the book and think, that's me. That's me in this moment. And whether the character's female, whether, whether he's male, whether he's good or bad, you say, I see a little bit of myself in that. And that informs the way that I live in the world. And that's, that's what the arts do. They kind of share 
they, they make it so that you don't feel you're alone in the world and that other people see the things you see. And that's why wokeness is death to art. That's why all the movies now on, on Netflix and on uh, Amazon Prime and all these places are not really good movies anymore because they're telling you about a life you know isn't there. They're showing you women beat up three men and you right. think like, nah, that's not the way. I, all the women I know are not beating up three men. That's what not what they're doing. This is not the way women behave. They don't behave like men. And so you can't identify with them. But I try to write books where you say, yeah, this is the world as I see it. This is, a, this is the world I understand and know. And that can be done in all kinds of genres. It can be done in fantasy. It can be done in science fiction. I do it in detective fiction because it's a, a, a genre I love and because it mingles kind of the science fiction of the moment we're living in with kind of past values of finding the truth and putting the truth together. So I, I love this genre and always have. And I think that you know, I think I do it well, and I'm trying to communicate life in this moment to other people. Right. Real quick, last question for you. Um, so many of your books, as you mentioned, have been sort of, I don't know what the correct term is, optioned, I guess, optioned, to be made yeah. movies. Um, do you think based on your current stance that that's a possibility going forward? Or is is it the, the work that you're doing with The Daily Wire I mean that's not a possibility anymore? Yeah, it's not a possibility in Hollywood. I yeah. mean, it's funny. When I sent the first Cameron Winter book to my agent, he loved it. The, uh, it's called When Christmas Comes, and he just loved it. He said, and he could not believe I'd been blacklisted, and he went to over 100 people with it and didn't get a single bite. And I was saying to him, you know, I'm blacklisted. You know, don't waste your time. I said, no, no, no. They would never black. Oh, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. Nothing, you know. So yeah. I think these books can be made. I think they're, I think, listen, I'm pretty sure my books will be made into movies at some point, but it's not going to be now and it's not going to be by Hollywood. All right. The book is called The House of Love and Death. It's another great read by Andrew. If you haven't already done it, please go to Amazon, buy the book or go to your local bookseller on the Upper East Side of New York or in Greenwich Village to help make the New York Times bestseller list. Andrew, uh, I appreciate you being with us. Folks, thank you for, uh, for enjoying this conversation with us today. Tomorrow, we have a great panel discussion on Friday, Dinesh D'Souza. Thanks for everything you do to support the show. Continue to subscribe, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and on, uh, on hit that notification button on YouTube. We'll see you back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show.